Welcome to First Mile's Climate Heroes. I'm your host, Bruce Bratley, founder of recycling company First Mile. On this show, we meet and learn from the climate heroes who are building solutions right now to tackle climate change. Today's guest on First Mile's Climate Heroes is a titan of sustainability and he works tirelessly to help massive companies across the globe deliver their ESG strategies. It's a pleasure, a huge pleasure, to welcome Stuart McCutlin, founder and CEO of Anthesis, to the show. Stuart's first book is out now, and he, with co-author Dean Sanders, wrote The Adventure of Sustainable Performance to reveal glimpses of an alternative future that is both positive, helpful, and probably, hopefully, within reach. In this episode, we'll find out if big business are able to work fast enough to keep global warming in check. Stuart, welcome to First Mile's Climate Heroes. Thanks, Bruce. Great to be here and I really appreciate the invite. Really? Well, you're very welcome. Thanks for taking that time and from saving the planet. And uh, great to have you on the show. We're looking forward to hearing all about the book as well as Anthesis. But before we get into the, uh, the, the new book, which is out and exciting, tell us about the Anthesis story and how did you get to being a climate hero? So, first learned about climate science back in 1985, which ages me a little bit. Uh, and uh, I um, it was at university. And I always remember the um, the head of faculty came in to see us on the first day of uh, that first term, and uh, and said to us, uh, "If you want a job uh, associated with the subject of your degree, you need to change courses now because there are just no jobs in this subject." Um, but anyway, uh, I decided to carry on. And it's probably like, like most people, it doesn't matter whether it happens in 1985 or, or, or whatever year you come to discover the truth in the climate science. At that point, everything changes because you realise that uh, at some point in your likely lifetime, uh, humanity is going to have to face the greatest transformational change it's ever had to grapple with. And, uh, and so, you know, from that, in terms of really sort of learning more and more about the reality of the climate science. And of course, the climate science was known in 1985 and was being widely talked about. In fact, it was Margaret Thatcher that gave a talk to the UN the day before the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, you know, about the reality of the climate science and the, the need for the world to decarbonize. So it was it was obviously known about then. And then, um, and then I decided because I was I was both passionate about that, but also passionate about the opportunity that was afforded business uh, to be able to make a change. And I've always been a believer that business is an institution that is is both powerful and agile and, and, and therefore needs to be lent on to be a an influence in terms of the change that we want to make in the world. So, uh, so I started to look at how uh, and this was just in the sort of early days of the emergence of environmental and sustainability consulting businesses as to to what kind of advice could be given to um, to organisations in this area. So uh, I was uh, I was asked to set up the environmental and sustainability advisory business at a company called WSP in uh, 1995, and then uh, we grew that over time. WSP became a uh, FTSE 250 company. So I, I did a stint on the board of a PLC, uh, and then in 2012, we decided that uh, we really wanted to focus on the area of the climate transition, sustainable use of resources, what we now call ESG, and so it was a sort of now and now or never moment. Uh, and myself and various other people that I, I knew 
from the market and the industry felt that with a blank sheet of paper, we could start to piece together an organization that was a little bit different. Partly born out of frustration, if I'm honest, uh, frustration about all this sort of talk about sustainability and not enough action. And we started to look at why there wasn't enough action and where there was action, there were very high failure rates. And we concluded that uh, organizations were trying to implement sustainability in silos, whether they are geographical silos, where you're ignoring the reality of global value chains and the need to look at sustainability from sourcing, supply chain, manufacturing, point of sale, end of life, and so on, or technical silos. So looking at carbon in isolation of water, isolation of waste, isolation of biodiversity, and so on. And, and these are all highly interdependent so you need to look at it more holistically and the other thing that sort of vexed us was the lack of sort of robustness in the data um, that people were using to try to evidence the decisions that they needed to make and just none of this was in place so there were systemic and market failures and we thought that with a blank sheet of paper that gives us the opportunity to sort of piece things together in a different way we could we could do things um more more effectively and the, the picture we always used was and we still use, to be honest, is that the market was being provided with a jigsaw puzzle with no picture on the lid or the wrong picture on the lid and with the wrong piece of the jigsaw in the box. And then organisations are being given this and say, you know, go and build something useful. And, and uh, I think that's why we've lost so much time. Because, I mean, 1985 uh, was a long time ago and 95, 10 years down the road, you know, they sort of keep, there's this sort of 10-year chunks of time where things didn't really start moving forward. And then, we, you know, we're in the decisive decade now where we need to put a lot in. We're already four years, three years into it. And is the picture on the front of the jigsaw box clear now, do you think? Or do you think we're still sort of uh, looking for edge pieces? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a great question. I, I think the reality is, is, as we sort of stare into this transition zone, as we call it, you know, which is this the sort of moment of disruption and, and, and peril for a lot of organisations, you know, at some point, we will get to, you know, the next era. And at some point in the transition zone, then we'll have the opportunity to start to redesign and reimagine what that new era might look like. Uh, so, and we don't have clarity on that. Uh, so if the picture on the lid of the jigsaw is the new era, then it's fuzzy. If the picture on the lid of the jigsaw is net zero, or moving from a linear business model to circular business model, that's clearer. Uh, but actually, if you look at net zero uh, and the kind of commitments that organizations are making to net zero, that's an emergency response. It's not actually the design of the next era. It's an emergency response. It's a bit like lockdown in the pandemic. And so we have to get control of this within this existential crisis that we're in, uh, in the same way as we had to lock down the world in the pandemic. And so we've got much more clarity in terms of what that means. And do you think we made it harder because we are, if we'd got on with this sooner, would we have had more time to design the future? Or do you think it was just inevitable that we had to get through this, we have to get through this sort of emergency response before we get into, and is, is the emergency response of net zero the transitional stage or will it force us into this transitional stage? Uh, I, th I think that the commitments that we're seeing made from our clients around net zero, where they're setting targets and they don't know how they're going to be able to meet them, is the transition. It is 
time of disruption. Have we embraced this too late? I mean, in, in my world, I would say that I've waited for 30 years for the kind of opportunity that we've, uh, we've got at the moment to be able to really use business as a force for good. When did business and the market really wake up to the reality of this crisis? I would say three or four years ago. You know, and if we go back to, you know, 1985, we've known about this for a long time. But what's happened is that if we, you know, we talk a lot about old era, new era and transition zone. The era that we are moving away from is an era that was originally designed at the end of the Second World War. And what typically happens through every era is you see the establishment and the building of models and systems and what we call in the book strongholds. And, you've, you know, strongholds could be, for example, the fossil fuel sector, or it could be a particularly rampant form of consumerism or a particularly greedy form of capitalism, or it could be our, our obsession with linear business models rather than closing the loop, which you obviously understand a lot about, uh, and uh, moving to circular. You know, there, there are lots of these kind of strongholds and these models that we have become dependent upon. And to try to get leaders to move from managing the strongholds into a place of transition where a lot of those strongholds are going to start to disintegrate and where a lot of the assets that they have been asked to manage are going to become stranded. And they've got to identify which assets are going to be stranded, which assets then need to be stewarded across the, the transition. This is, this is a place that typically leaders don't want to go to. Yeah, and this and this is we're sort of getting into the premise of the book here. So, could you give us an example of um, a business? Don't need to name name a name or a type of business or a sector where you have leaders that are in a strong stronghold and they've got to get from sort of being a, a day one business, day one leader to a day two leader, but they've got to almost sort of go through the transitional liminal no man's land to get to the other side and bring that bring that to life for for, for the listeners. Yeah, sure. Well, let, let's look at fossil fuel, uh, which is probably the most uh, extreme example. So fossil fuel sector has made about $3 billion of profit a day for the last 50 years. So it's extremely powerful. And, you know, the world's economy is dependent upon fossil fuel in the context of the old era. And now whether it's uh, an investor or teenage Swedish girl or customers or you know you've got the world then saying to leaders your time's up your time's up we the world's got to decarbonize you've got to step into the transition zone how are you going to go about it and you know that's a difficult place for a leader because because the leaders within that sector have been appointed to manage that stronghold so what we see is we see two responses we see the response from leaders saying okay we need you know, we are we are going into a time now of potential peril. It's going to be a time of disruption, but we have no choice and we've got to embrace it. Or you see leaders trying to move the business and their stakeholders into a fantasy zone, into a fantasy zone saying, you know, this climate science is not real. Let's, un- let's, let's undermine it, you know, moving into sort of climate denial or, or trying to, um, to, to spit out green, greenwashing claims. And, and what, they're, what they're trying to do there, of course, is within the fantasy zone, is they're trying to buy time where they can shore up the walls of the, um, the, 
the stronghold or shore up their pension pot or whatever it might be. And that is, that is a temporary response. And in our view, as we sort of highlight in the book, the, the longer you, you spend time in the fantasy zone, the more explosive and the higher risk will be the potential disruption that you will have to face up to when you do actually move into the transition. And I think what's different now to what we've seen well, up to about maybe a year ago is that e- even, even if you can't get your head around the prospect of the, the risk and what we talk about in the book, the adventure of the transition zone, and you just really want to shore up your resistance stronghold, you can't because there's now the big stick of compliance the big stick of compliance that is, is bashing people out of that place and saying, you've got to move. And, you know, and, and investors who have got, a, you know, still a huge amount of potency, whether it's old era transitions, I know I'm sure the new era as well, are also saying to the leaders, you know, your time's up. We look at a lot of the policies of some of the institutional investors in fossil fuel, and they're saying, we want to see a clear net zero target and commitment. Uh, we want very clear milestones, and and it's three strikes from around. You've missed your your milestones, and we divest. First Mile is the UK's leading waste management service. We help over thirty thousand businesses reduce their carbon impact with our award-winning range of recycling solutions. Go to our website, which is the First Mile co.uk to get started today if you're enjoying this episode don't forget to subscribe we have brand new episodes every wednesday so when when big ceos you're talking to sort of you know multinational plcs do they do they say so Stuart, how long have we got how long when when do we need to do stuff because you know i've got compliance but it's two years away i've got shareholders who are you know, pension funds who want dividends now. Well, how long have I got? How do you answer that question? Uh, it's interesting. That, that is a question that I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I've ever been asked. A lot of them are talking about timeframes in the the context of net zero, because most of them, most of the people we're working for now, are really thinking about their net zero targets and their, their net zero journeys. But in the context of the existential crisis, then um, then I don't think people are really looking at it from that perspective, and maybe they should. I do feel, though, that the kind of conversations we were having up to about three or four years ago, where CEOs were, were looking to chuck more money at their CSR department or their, their ESG or sustainability department, and effectively, you know, they weren't using this language, but, but this was the intent, was if we chuck a bit more money at you each year, can you just take this thing away from us? Can you give us some nice stories? that you know, If we're challenged on it, then we can say some really great things. But, but effectively... Take it away from us so that we can do the job that we've been trained to do, which is to manage the status quo, because we don't want the disruption. We don't get those kind of conversations um, so much anymore. And that's one of the reasons why, in terms of the, the, the contacts that we're typically dealing with in our client organizations, have now moved from being the sustainability managers to the C-suite, because the C-suite are recognizing that this, this, is, this is now a, a, an enormous transformation that has got to be led from the top. And obviously the sustainability people in those organisations are also becoming more meaningful, more powerful, etc. But it's being led from the um, 
from the C-suite. And, and I think the, the, the other, I mean, if you look at the journey, typically, and I'm probably overly simplifying things, but there's an incremental part of the journey. Most organizations have set this net zero target and they're, the first thing they're doing is saying efficiency. And they're having a great time of it because actually the returns that they're getting from their investment in incremental efficiency gains are very favorable, especially with the energy prices the way they are at the moment. But it will be the law of diminishing returns. And so the incremental efficiency gains you get on your road to net zero might might take you 30 to 40% of where you need to go to be able to deliver against your net zero targets in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years or whenever, whenever it is. The, the more difficult bit is the transformational part of the journey, which is the, if you imagine the incremental bit going like that, law of diminishing returns, the transformational bit goes in the opposite direction. You've got to invest now because that is where you've got to make the most most disruptive and transformational changes within your business models and the way you do business. And, and you've got to make that investment that you're not getting the returns on that and you won't get the returns on that for some time. And what, we, what we're seeing is, is that we're seeing that it's increasing, but there are still, you know, very few leaders that really understand those two pathways and necessary to meet the targets that have been set. Um, I mean, there was one very... Um, uh, enlightened and pioneering CEO that uh, we had a meeting with last year, whose sustainability team came came on the screen uh, from around the world and and provided the uh, the numbers to him around the cost of compliance to meet net zero. And his response was, "Why are you giving me a cost of compliance? This surely has got to be." an investment against which we should expect a return because there's value to be created here. And so, you know, if the number that they were giving, giving him was 200 million euros over the next 10 years to as a cost of compliance, his response was, well, why shouldn't it be 300 million or 400 million? Because it's an investment. And, and that is an example of what we call in the book a day two leader. Somebody who can see beyond the compliance of day one and into day two, which is where the value creation is. On this show, we're building a hall of fame for climate heroes, and we always ask our wonderful guests to leave something in First Mile's Climate Heroes Hall of Fame. So what or who would it be? I think the person that I would like to put in the... Um uh, Climate Heroes Hall of Fame is Martin Hartley. So Martin is an Arctic explorer, uh, and we've um, we've been supporting him as our thesis. And so he's come to speak to us from time to time. And uh, and I think that you know there's something really appealing about the unsung heroes. And also, it's only really when you get to know them that you understand what they're going through to go to the Arctic year after year and see the damage and see the, the disappearance of the Arctic and the and the the environment that you know you've dedicated your life to and you care so profoundly about and to bring the reality of that uh, and the truth as to what is happening here and now not in terms of the predictions that the models are telling us about in 20, 30, 40 years time but actually what is happening now uh, to bring the reality of that back with all the danger and trepidation associated with 
those those journeys and expeditions that he uh, and his support team are making. You know, that really inspires us. Excellent. Stuart, the book, let's get on to it. What's it called? Where do I buy one? Uh, well, it's called, it's called this. I got a, I got a, an early um, copy. Uh, it's Excellent. The... A, a, a visual cue on a podcast is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> For your benefit. Your, your benefit. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, it's called The Adventure of Sustainable Performance to reflect two things, that this is an adventure. Uh, and um, with every adventure, there comes hopes and there comes fears and there comes a level of danger, but there is also a huge amount of opportunity and we need to call upon that sort of pioneering leadership that perhaps we have forgotten about in the world. And so uh, that's the link to the word adventure. Sustainable performance is a model that we are presenting as to what the new era might look like and uh, and a new sort of operating system, if you like. We recognise that there is an adventure uh, involved in the journey to be able to get to that new operating system. Uh, the um, the early title for the book was Canoeing Under Elephants, uh, which the publishers Wiley were concerned might end up in the travel section. So we, uh, <laughs> we, changed, we changed the name. And why canoeing under elephants? What's the story there? Yeah, so the, I mean, it's, the book is really framed around quite a, what we think is quite a sort of vivid metaphor. And it was, it's sort of slightly by accident, but uh, uh, we had a small team of people around Thesis as the sort of book strategy team to really sort of help us to, to put it together. And, uh, and, it, and it really came from, you know, Wiley, the book publishers coming to us and saying, hey, you know, we think you've got something in terms of the way you're doing things around thesis. You know, would you like to sort of distill it out into the form of a book? Uh, and, uh, and we were chatting uh, as, a, as a team and I, I was reflecting on an experience that my wife and I had had in, in Africa some years ago. And we were camping uh, on the banks of the Zambezi in Zimbabwe. And, uh, and on day one, uh, we went out with a guide and we just walked through the bush and we were quite relaxed and we've done quite a lot of this before i spent quite a bit of time in africa and uh but then something happened that never happened to us before which was and a bull elephant just sort of crashed out of the bush right in front of us and uh and took one look at us and sort of ran off and i remember saying to the guide you know that was uh that was a little bit close and he said very clearly stand behind me stand still say nothing and so it was just the three of us so that's what we did and we watched this elephant run away and it got to about 130 yards and then it turned and it charged at us uh and uh and it got faster and faster and it was making a huge amount of noise and it was flapping its ears and and it got to within about 30 or 40 yards and then the guy put his gun above his head not pointing at it he had no intention to use it just above his head and he and he walked up to it and shouted footsack which any of your south african listeners will know is is quite um, a disrespectful word um, for go away uh, in Afrikaans. And this elephant skidded to a halt and it ran away. And so that evening we went back and we sort of reflected on this and talked about the, the perils of the African bush, but also the excitement and the adventure of it. Uh, and we had that conversation around the campfire. And the next day we took some canoes out, we went up a river uh, and we put the canoes in the Zambezi and we, we canoed down again. It was just the two of us and, and this guide and uh, and the guide saw a herd of elephants in the shallows at the side of the Zambezi and said, 
hey, I think we're going to canoe in under those elephants. And we said, you've got to be joking. I thought, what happened yesterday? And he said, no, if we, if we re-approach the elephants from the water, they've never been threatened by anything from the water. So if we re-approach them from the, the water, then we can canoe in right underneath them. And, uh, and that's what we did. And, uh, and we, uh, we were so close that as the elephants were pulling the weed out of the, the shallows of the Zambezi and putting the weed in the mouth, the water was pouring out of the mouths over our heads. We were that close and they were completely relaxed. Uh, and uh, as I was telling the story, the, uh, this, this team of people and thesis said, that's the metaphor. That is the metaphor for the book, uh, which is effectively, you know, day one, the charts. That's where the world is at the moment. They're being charged at by, you know, all this stakeholder pressure and ESG and impact investment and compliance. And, you know, they don't know where to go. And, and strongholds disintegrating and the prospect of having to move from managing the status quo into this place of disruption, the place we call the, the transition zone in the book. Uh, so that's, that's the charge. And then the second section of the book is the campfire, where we really try to sort of unpick what, what is happening to sort of reflect on why this is happening, to get under the skin of it and to understand it better for then the reapproach, which is the third section of the book, uh, which is how can we reapproach the whole subject of sustainability to find value uh, and to to find a, an, an opportunity that is is in fact enriching for us as as leaders, business leaders, governmental leaders, leaders of cities, but also enriching for the uh, the single planet that we occupy. That is a beautiful story and a really, because um, we sort of, a lot of us in sustainability, we think we're doing stuff, but actually that description of the charge is really where we are and a huge amount of energy is consumed with it. So it is huge and just moving out of that stronghold around the campfire is uh, actually a great, a great metaphor. And I think we understand that. The reapproach, you know, we all want to be relaxing in the canoe in the world of, you know, a sustainable planet where humanity has a future and we're basking in the in the water that's coming off the elephant's mouth. Give us some examples of how that world is going to look like and what the opportunity is there in the reapproach. Yeah, so it's interesting. We we've uh, what we've done in the book is we've interviewed uh, we've interviewed lots of leaders. Uh, including yourself, Bruce, as people who have inspired us, who we think are pioneering, who are helping to lead us and navigate us through day one to a place where we can we can find value in this in this reapproach. But there, there are also some leaders who are just born for day two, who are positioned their business at day two, and we've interviewed such leaders, such as Sean, the leader leader of a company called uh, Lands Tech. He tells us a story of how he was actually a marine biologist and he came to, he came to really understand the, the gaseous composition of the vents at the bottom of the ocean and then realised that it was, it was the same as the, the gaseous emissions coming out of stacks of steelworks. And then, then to look at the species that thrived at the bottom of the ocean in that environment and seeing if you could recreate that on these stacks, which you can. Um, and then, you know, over time, this this has been commercialized to effectively extract the pollutant emissions from these stacks 
that are then absorbed within the algae and the, the biochemistry and the sort of composition that is created. Uh, and then from the uh, these species such as algae thriving within that environment, you can then turn that algae into biofuels and byproducts, etc. So these are the opportunities. Now, question mark, I suppose, is that something that's going to help us through the the transitions I know is that something for day two and I think time will tell around that you know there's there's also you know the people that we've spoken to such as if we go into the agricultural sector we've spoken to businesses who say hey we've got a solution for the um, the dairy farming sector which is obviously quite a significant contributor to carbon emissions and that is we're going to do away with the agricultural sector uh, and then you you push into that and they say uh, well, actually, so much of what is produced is just biochemistry, you know, and, and what they're talking about is in 20, 30 years time, uh, you'll be able to reproduce, you know, and, and this, this sends a little bit of a shudder through me, as I'm sure it does with you and many other listeners, you, you'll be able to reproduce wine and beer and all that kind of thing at home. You know, there, there are beverage printers that are likely to go on sale this year in the United States. Where you ask, be able to, you'd probably be able to ask Alexa to print you a particular drink at home. But in the dairy sector, of course, what they're saying is is that that you know a, a pint of milk is eighty percent water, is sixteen percent fat, fairly standard fat, and what makes it unique is the four percent protein. Uh, that protein can now be remanufactured in the laboratory at commercial rates. So you're able to reproduce exactly the same product that we currently get from cows in the laboratory at, at a lower cost. And what they're saying is, in day two, we'll look back and say, well, a cow was always the most inefficient way to produce a pint of milk. And then, of course, you know, then, and, and they would also say, same for chocolate, same for olive oil. Same for lots, lots, lots of other things that we currently rely on our agricultural systems to produce. Now, now of course, if that represents day two, you know, going back to the the, 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 um, the early conversation around the disruption, you know, that might tackle the existential climate crisis that we find ourselves in. But you can imagine the societal impact and the potential, not just for stranded assets, but for st- stranded countries who are dependent upon these agricultural systems for their economy and to support the, the populations that live there. Stuart, we are, we're going to have to have an episode two. There's too much to cover. Um, so we're going to wrap up. The Adventure of Sustainable Performance. It's out. Check it out. Wiley website. Anthesis website, which is anthesis.com, is it? Or .co.uk.com? Anthesisgroup.com. Excellent. We'll have links in the bio to the show. Stuart, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for including me in the book. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Check out your work. You're activating sustainability and thesis, and I think also an activist. Uh, so well done. I think some really great original thinking in the book. It is fantastic. So really great stuff. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Bruce. Uh, a great pleasure. Really enjoyed it. I'm Bruce Bratley, and you've been listening to First Miles Climate Heroes, where we meet incredible people making an impact to tackle climate change. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and subscribe to the show. We have brand new episodes every Wednesday.